Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode. Today we have the first live interview in a very long time that Ava got a chance to do with Professor Von Cooper from the University of Pittsburgh on the 22nd of September. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, everyone. We are here today with a very special guest, and I mean special because for first time since 2019, I'm sitting here in our real AMR studio with someone. Uh, Von Cooper is here visiting Uppsala to be the opponent of a defense of a very dear colleague of us, and he has kindly agreed to be interviewed about his work with biofilms, that if you remember, we talked about biofilms by covering an article a few episodes back. So he's going to talk about how he works with biofilms, how he works with uh, evolution, deep core evolution studies, which is very interesting. And we are going to learn a little bit about his path here. Hi, Vaughn. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the AMR podcast. So I'm Vaughn Cooper. I'm a professor at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Medicine. I started out wanting to be an ecologist because I'm an outdoorsman. I love to fish. And when I started doing biology in undergraduate at Amherst College, I thought I would do something having to do with how predator fish interacted with prey fish. And my undergraduate advisor, Paul Ewald, said, that's really interesting, Vaughn, but the experiments that you're proposing will never work, and certainly not in the time that you have here in college. And he said, why don't you start instead working on this other project where we're looking at how viruses evolve. And I thought that was a bad idea at first, but I became seduced by the fact that those experiments happened quickly, within a week. And I've basically been doing experimental evolution work with viruses and bacteria ever since. From Amherst College, I started at UC San Diego and actually ended up leaving to go work with Richard Lenski at Michigan State University, where I worked on his famous long-term evolution experiment. Then I did a postdoc at the University of Michigan. Then I became an associate professor at the University of New Hampshire. And in 2015, I moved to Pitt. Oh, that's a, it's a bit of a zigzagging around yeah. the U.S., right? Yeah. So you were interested, I mean, I understand your position when you were an undergrad about prey and predator relationships and yeah. how that it's uh, ecologically and evolutionarily very interesting. And I also understand that the time, you know, as you were saying in the seminar today, we become impatient. So moving into microbes, it's a very good system because it's fast. You can see things happening. You can see evolution in real time. I did my PhD also in something very similar. I did a lot of evolution experiments in the lab, and it's great that you can test hypotheses pretty quickly. In Richard Lensky lab, where is where you did your PhD, I guess you were asking very basic evolutionary questions about the evolution of bacteria. Right. How did you move from basic questions to perhaps more applied questions when it come to antibiotics and antibiotic resistance? So the truth is that when I joined Rich's lab, I wanted to also study the evolution of resistance or the evolution of virulence. But the questions in the long-term evolution experiment were frankly just too seductive. They were there. And the story that I always tell about my time in Rich's lab is when you join the Lenski lab, 
part of a rite of passage is to do a fitness assay where you take, as you know, evolved bacteria and compete them against their ancestor, which was frozen away. You bring them up together, mix them, and you can measure how much better the evolved strains are relative to the ancestor. And I did that as part of my kind of indoctrination in the lab. And seeing the change in real time with those red and white colonies was captivating, Mm -hmm. right? And so that pretty much captured me for the rest of the time. And I wondered how that measurement fitness in the lab environment was affecting their ability to grow in other environments. And so I studied specialization. But I never really lost my interest for questions like the ones that I came with, or what makes bacteria, how do they become better pathogens? How fast does it happen? What are the genetic pathways? Mm -hmm. If there's a drug there, does that affect their path to colonization and so on? And so when I moved to Michigan for my postdoc, I moved to work you know, in pathogens, in sort of what I called more charismatic microbes that did more interesting things than the Lensky strains of E. coli, as fascinating as they are too. Personally, I think it's a good startup, right? You learn very basic concepts of evolution that, of course, the underlying mechanisms that are working in pathogens are going to be pretty similar, right? So I guess it's complementary work by having your training in something very not basic, I don't want to call it basic, but it's just like you really are not seeing any particular trait or any particular phenotype, like it could be pathogenicity, but it's just understanding evolution as a whole. And then you come and you continue your career by seeing, okay, how can I use everything that I've learned, all those skills, all those experiments into this very specific question that I want to answer, right? So Yeah, that's absolutely true. And the gift that I was given by being in the Lensky lab was gaining a deep appreciation for evolutionary principles, right? So how do populations change in real time? How how do we infer the numbers of mutations that might be there, even though we can't see them yet? So I just want to be clear, I was in the Lensky lab in the sort of pre or early genomic era. So we couldn't sequence genomes quickly. I got lucky and discovered the first one with a phenotype screen. We could see, say, a bacteria could grow better in this environment. And we knew that it was heritable because its daughter cells also had that same trait. So it's encoded, right? We didn't know where the genes were. And so when I moved to working on pathogens, I was thinking, well, someday I'm going to be able to discover the genes, the mutations that allow pseudomonas or burkholderia, these are you know cystic fibrosis pathogens, how do they actually evolve in the CF airway? How does that make them more antibiotic resistant? And that's what I started out with my new lab, even then without genomes in my hand. And then in 2006, I learned of this new machine called Selexa that wound up becoming Illumina that allowed us to sequence bacterial genomes efficiently. And it changed my career, right? So suddenly evolution became genetics. Mm-hmm. And that's been transformative for, for my career and many other careers and yours too. Yeah, definitely. Like I came into research and science a bit later than you. So for me, already doing whole genome sequencing was kind of like the standard. You were already planning your experiments knowing that 
at the end point, you are going to be able to sequence and you're going to be able to see what is there. So I guess the mindset of how you do things before the genomic era and after the genomic era because of the possibilities that it opens, it's, it's a bit different. But it's also cool that you can go back to the things that you did before and now you can analyze them in a different way. So right. the breadth of potential data that you are able to analyze is really big. Absolutely. So how did you go about studying pathogenicity and in particular biofilms when you set up your, your lab? Great question. So honestly, that came from my work in John LaPuma's lab at Michigan studying the cystic fibrosis-associated pathogens. And just for the audience, cystic fibrosis is a, is a genetic disease in a large fraction of people. And that causes them to become much more susceptible to chronic airway infections of their sinuses and in their lungs. And that's because it's a defect in salt transport that makes mucus really thick and sticky, and that allows bacteria to set up shop and basically establish long-term, um, lifelong infections. And in those infections, bacteria evolve. And so in the Lapuma lab, we were receiving isolates from patients to characterize and define. And a unifying sort of character of them is they produced more biofilm. So they produced these really, I would say, beautiful colonies, sometimes wrinkly like rosettes. And those were associated with increased biofilm. So they were terrible for the patient, but as a microbiologist, they were captivating. These bacteria had evolved to produce more slime, but also more drug resistance. And when I started my new lab, I wanted to sort of help define how is it the bacteria get there? What are the genetic and phenotypic ways that bacteria that you isolate from chronic infections evolve to have those traits? So you were saying cystic fibrosis patients, what happens is that the mucus in their airway is different. So is biofilm or the capacity of bacteria making biofilm is an adaptation to that particular environment? The question for a lot of people studying infections of CF is how specific are their adaptations to that CF environment, or are they able to do that elsewhere? And it's, I guess the alternative would be, it's just that the patients are susceptible. The bacteria haven't done much different. I think now we would say that the answer is a bit of both. And we can say that because the bacteria that challenge persons with cystic fibrosis also challenge persons with other reactive or um, sort of deficient airway disorders, like people who have COPD, who also have mucus in their airway. It's a different mucus, but the same bacteria are found there. And further, the adaptations that they gain are similar. So that means that there's something intrinsic in the bacteria in their ability to get into these infections. And then there are ways that they adapt to that environment that are shared. So to ask that question further, how much of that is biofilm or how much of it is just that mucus that is already allowing them to set up shop? And honestly, I don't think we in the field know yet how much of the adaptation is driven by biofilm itself or by sort of their starting condition. That's very interesting. So you have worked a lot with cystic fibrosis-associated biofilms, but biofilms are also quite important for other kind of infections. And I think a lot of people out there don't really realize how important biofilms are in healthcare 
right? And how many biofilms are associated with what we call also hospital-acquired infections that many of them lead to sepsis and to death by resistant pathogens as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how biofilms are related with general infections? You're absolutely right that biofilms underlie maybe even the majority of bacterial infections and fungal infections in all sorts of settings. You know, biofilms are probably the dominant form of life for microbes. They mostly live on surfaces, and when they live on surfaces, they produce structures that allow them to stay on those surfaces. Then those structures can be small, just a few cells, or large, you know, basically producing visible slime on, say, rocks and streams. And that structure makes them durable, and that protects the cells from stresses like antibiotics. It protects them from immune cells in infections, and it makes them really hard to get rid of. So, I mean, arguably biofilms being the dominant form of life and also a critical step in forming drug-resistant infections makes disentangling biofilm from drug resistance or figuring out how those two factors interact, I'd say, really important. So just to step forward, we decided in the lab to start developing experiments away from infections and just focus on the development of biofilm adaptations and then also biofilm adaptations related to drug resistance. So that's kind of like going to the underlying causes, right? Like right. take the complexity of the infection away and then focus on, okay, what is it that is happening in this biofilm? Because biofilms are really important when it comes to infections that affect the quality of life and care of people. That's very, very interesting. And also the fact that you're looking at it, not just about the formation, but the evolution of yeah. that biofilm and that community of bacteria. So what is it that you have been mostly working on recently with biofilms? Right. So if you don't mind, I'll take a quick step back and sort of present the problem. So I already said we were really interested in these chronic infections. We knew that they tended to be associated with more biofilm, more antibiotic resistance, and they were also diverse. So if you took a bunch of isolates from a, an infection and plated them out, they looked different, and that seemed to be genetic. So we had this sort of pool of diversity that would come from chronic infections, and we want to know how we got there. And disentangling that diversity is hard in an animal or an animal model or in certainly in a human infection because you can't manipulate it. And so I often joke when you take all that diversity out of an infection sample or in a long-term biofilm, it's kind of like a black box, right? So there's immense diversity, but you can't recreate that history. And so what we decided to do is to try and recreate that history in the simplest form in the laboratory. And we did the ridiculously simple sort of step of putting a plastic bead in a test tube and transferring only the bacteria that were on plastic beads into new tubes where there's a new bead. So the cells have to attach, form a biofilm on the bead, and then in the next day disperse and colonize a new biofilm upon transfer. And that replicates this biofilm life cycle in a really handy way. And as a control for our planktonic, more well-mixed populations, we just dilute populations into fresh media, giving them fresh food every day without the plastic bead. And that's really sort of mimicking what we did back in the Lenski lab in the planktonic phase, and the biofilm is being uh, mimicked on these plastic beads. 
we get mixed feedback about it. Some people have said, oh, it's really elegant. Some people say it's stupid simple. Some people say it really doesn't mimic anything about an infection. And I would agree, it doesn't mimic anything about an infection. But it does allow us to study those initial phases of attachment to a surface and allow us to ask whether that is sort of setting the stage for some of these early adaptations associated with producing more polymer slime and resistance. And what did you find in those experiments? Did you kind of found the pattern that you were thinking you were going to get? Well, so we predicted that we would see more genetic diversity in biofilms. We were stunned by how quickly that happened. Mm -hmm. So it happens in our lab, depending on the bacteria to start with, within days or a few weeks. And the other piece of it that's remarkable is that those adaptations are conspicuous. So they change the colonies that they make on the plates. And some of those colonies are, in our eyes, beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in the safe bacteria, Pseudomonas fluorescence, we can get uh, mutations that produce these rosette-like colonies or small wrinkly colonies that are associated with more biofilm within just three to five days. Mm -hmm. And we've turned that into a curriculum for high school students that we call Evolving STEM, where students get to see evolution in action in real time just like I did back in the Lensky lab, but actually faster. <laughs> and it's been really gratifying. But the other piece that made us wonder is, does this dynamic happen when we add drugs? And so what I, we were just talking about before this podcast, I honestly thought that once we added drugs, this would sort of interfere with this diversity. And much to our surprise, by adding a potent drug like ciprofloxacin to these evolution experiments, with a bacteria like Acinetobacter baumannii, which is uh, another cause of opportunistic infections, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, that the biofilm populations also generate and maintain more diversity than the well-mixed populations. And so the punchline there is that simply growth in biofilms in the presence of drugs allows the population to become more genetically diverse. And a more genetically diverse population is a harder one to control if you're mm -hmm. aiming to treat an infection. It's a more robust population, right? Because by having different potential pathways for evolution, it's more ready to anything that happens around it, right? So it's a more robust... That's correct. I'd, I'd say that too. So if you put in, say, another drug, there's now genetic diversity there sort of primed to potentially respond to that new stress. And then on top of that, the way the bacteria adapt is different. And the biofilm actually protects them from the drug. So the cells in the biofilm are not actually perceiving the drug as much as cells that are dispersed. And so that gives them a shield. So they don't actually become as resistant, but they're still just as hard to kill. <laughs> so the way they adapt is through mutations that cause less deficits in their fitness. Mm -hmm. So the bacteria are kind of getting two benefits. They are adapting to life and drugs, and they are producing biofilm and becoming more diverse. And so the net is a harder population to control. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And it has a lot of implications for treatment, right? When it we does. think about what do we consider a susceptible population versus a resistant one? It might be different depending on the kind of infection we're talking about. 
which can be really relevant for doctors and practitioners out there to decide how to treat their patients. You're absolutely right. And here's a potential action from this discovery. The actual mutations, the genes that drive adaptation in these biofilm and drug-treated populations are different. That is potentially diagnostic if you could, say, sequence those clones from an infection and ask, are they adapting to biofilm or, or not? Is the way they're becoming resistant biofilm associated or not? In the Acinetobacter experiment that I was just talking about, those mutations sometimes increase susceptibility to other drugs. Mm-hmm. And that is a neat discovery. It's a phenomenon called collateral sensitivity. So what that means is that they become more resistant to drug A, but they become more susceptible to drug B. And that leads to the idea that combination therapy or sequential therapy might control that. And Mm -hmm. so the postdoc, Alfonso Santos Lopez, who's since become an independent researcher in, in Madrid, showed that that collateral sensitivity can be exploited. And so by, in turn, evolving in drug B, they become susceptible to drug A, often by the same genes, mutations in the same genes. So that you can imagine then designing a therapy in sequence that would control a population that might normally not be controlled. That is very interesting and a lot of food for thought and action there and trying to introduce all these things into a model. It would be really good, I would say, for for the clinic. So I, I agree. And a lot of other really smart scholars have been working on these collateral or combination therapy projects. And unfortunately, those researchers have mostly been frustrated. <laughs> So it turns out that bacteria can adapt to more than one challenge at once. Mm-hmm. And just in our lab, recent postdoc, Dr. Francine Arroyo, did do that and showed that these same bacteria can solve two problems at once, but they experience underlying trade-offs that in turn may be exploited by other stresses. And mm-hmm. so we're always hopeful for sort of Achilles heels emerging in these combination therapies. Hopefully, we'll see where the field goes. Moving a little bit forward on the interview, I am very curious about your experiences working with people from other disciplines or adjacent disciplines, because I imagine you are a pure on evolutionary biologist, geneticist, and yeah. then you move into the field of pathogenicity and uh, antimicrobial resistance as well. And I assume you have been to conferences, which sometimes are not really just the core of what you're doing, but you're trying to bring your results to those people. So I'm wondering if you have come across things or concepts or ideas that are perhaps misunderstood or that don't translate so well to other disciplines? There's a lot, right? So that's the nature of interdisciplinary science, right? And it's not unique to me. I'd say one major point that I need to clarify is that when we study evolution with the power of whole genome sequencing, that the data are not impossible to manage. In fact, sometimes the findings can be as simple as finding one mutation. And so evolution is not this impossible population problem sort of buried in big data. It actually can lead to very simple and powerful insight. And I say maybe even more powerful because the mutation that is selected is not just any mutation. It's the best one. So that's the beauty of natural selection. It sees all, or it sees most, mutations. 
and it selects for the best of them. So that one clone that you're studying that somehow maybe increases resistance and biofilm, it's the best one. Mm -hmm. And so we've learned something really powerful about how the bacteria works. And then often the question is, well, is it relevant to a chronic infection? That becomes, you know, just a matter of looking at the data. We ask, okay, well, we look at the isolates that come out of all of these chronic infections. Mm -hmm. We sequence them. We look at those mutations in those genomes, and we ask, do they also have mutations in those genes? And often the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And so we're not explaining the full history and all of those different infections, which, you know, almost inevitably they're different. But we're explaining one key part of that, maybe one early part of that adaptation. So at least gives us a handle on something to go after. So that, I think, has been important bridge building. That, mm -hmm. you know, it's not evolution and population genetics. It, it is those, but it is also genetics. Mm -hmm. It's down to a single mutation. It's a mutation that is found in chronic infections. And it may be relevant also to a problem in immunity or a problem in pharmacology which becomes a, a further bridge. Yeah, what I love about genetics, and you're saying this, is that natural selection gives you the answer to a problem that is there. And by understanding the answer, you can really understand what the underlying problem was. And it's with this mutation, it's also telling you something about the physiology, the metabolism, the relationship between the bacteria and the immune system in this setup. And if you are able to do simple, elegant, so-called elegant experiments in the lab, and then you are able to tap onto all the data that is available from this clinical isolate, and then you see parallels, you can really draw a lot of conclusions, I would say, right? I would agree. And you did a great job of sort of selling the approach But the honest point is that we often don't understand all of the reasons why that gene, those mutations are the best. I mean, that's a big question. Why that one and not another one? And often these mutations change many traits. And mm -hmm. so it raises the question, which trait? For instance, is it biofilm or is it sort of antibiotic tolerance, a phenomenon where they are not actually clinically resistant based on major breakpoints, but they're still okay at persisting somehow in patients. And that's, I think, now a big motivator for us is, you know, maybe you've talked about with your listeners, a lot of treatments fail, meaning the patient is treated with lots of drugs, and then you pull those isolates of those bacteria or fungi out of those infections, you bring them to the lab, and they're not clinically resistant based on standard laboratory measures. Mm -hmm. So why did it fail? Yeah. And it sometimes goes through these mutations that are doing multiple things, right? They're linking multiple traits like biofilm or resistance or tolerance. We don't know how that works. And that's, I think, an exciting new area of study. It's discovery work, but hopefully it's discoveries that's going to point to different ways of controlling infections. And also analyzing the data, right? Not just relying on the gold standard. Now we know, okay, even if it shows sensitive in the paper, in this test, it might actually not work for my patient. So how can we include that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, very important and very insightful as well. Unfortunately, we are running almost out of time. We've been talking for a little while. It was very great to hear about your work and to uh, get a little bit of an insight of how a pure evolutionary biologist moves into these more applied fields and, and looks at the problems from this evolutionary biology and genetics mindset, which is very nice. Before we um, sign off, I would like to ask you if there is any sort of wish list or hopes that you have for 
the future in your field or fields that you're interested in and what would you like to see more of? What do you want our listeners out there that have the potential of doing something? What is it that you wish there would be? I'd say the first thing is that evolution is intrinsically beautiful, but it's also can be incredibly useful. So these studies where we're following infections in near real time with high resolution can teach us a lot about how evolution works, but can teach us a lot about how infection biology and antibiotic resistance work. And I hope that motivates people to study evolution for itself, because it, again, it's a useful science. I think the other is that it's uh, something that happens quickly. And so it's the kind of work that many people can do in, in lots of different classroom or research settings. It doesn't have to be as intimidating or sort of old and, and historical <laughs> as the field is often portrayed. For sure. And it's also so great to learn about how different things apply to different systems. You know, right. the underlying basis is, is the same. And I really love that quote that is like, uh, nothing makes sense in biology if it's not under the light of evolution, kind of. Yeah. And I think that's right. And often people look at that quote and think, oh, that's nice, but it's really a historical insight. And I think what you and I and your listeners know is that that resistance can evolve quickly in real time. And what I'm saying is we can make sense of it and hope to plot next steps that can control infections. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Before we really, really, really sign off this, yeah. anything else you would like to tell our listeners? Well, I think the, the last thing is just I sort of made a remark earlier in the podcast. One of the, the programs we're most proud of is this education program called Evolving STEM, where high school students from in dozens of schools around the US and hopefully in time around the world, learn some of these fundamentals by doing an experiment themselves. And I, I just, you know, I'm going to those classrooms and watching students see bacteria change in real time and begin to understand how evolution works for themselves. I really wish I could have learned that <laughs> at that time. And I would hope that others can discover that program themselves. So if they want to find out more, they can find us through our website, evolvingstem.org. Mm -hmm. We will leave a link in the show notes for Thanks sure. So, much. so we can we can share it around the world, hopefully. Yes. All right. Vaughn, thank you so much for being here with us. It was lovely to hear from you here in person in front of, of each other. Yeah, it's, it's a... really nice to have a conversation <laughs> in person. That's the way podcasting should be instead of Zoom, right? Right. And I hope you have a wonderful stay here in Uppsala, in this autumn of Uppsala. It's already been great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Hi, everyone. Welcome back from this interview. Actually, today I am here in front of Jenny. <laughs> yeah. Talking to her in real life as well as it was with the interview, which was really nice. So, Jenny, I want to know how how did you take on this interview? What did you think? Because this is actually quite close to the themes that you are also working with, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't personally work with biofilm or actually these particular pathogens. But I mean, like you, I've also worked with experimental evolution a bit in my actual experimental work. And that was one of the things that kind of hit me. I, I liked this thought process of somebody saying like, oh, I want to work in ecology. I want to work uh, looking at predator-prey relationships. And then this concept of, okay, but microbiology is a great place to do this because of the fast generation times and how we can really study change over time in an actual setting that works in a lab. It goes fast enough for us to study it. Mm -hmm. And then I loved personally, because I also worked a lot with E. coli. He started in these kind of lab strain E. coli that maybe aren't so clinically relevant. 
And he's moved into the similar kind of work, but in much more clinically relevant pathogens. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really nice development on the basics, on the groundwork. He built up the groundwork and he's moved on to more complicated and complex structures. But still, I like that he focused on the simple questions yeah. in a sense. Like, yeah, it's applied work. It's like, how is this relevant for, you know, these pathogens and these very relevant diseases where biofilms might be involved in? And he mentions it in the interview, you know, that sometimes we think the things are really complex and there is a lot of things in interplay, right? But trying to at least focus on one of them and what can we learn about this? And one thing that it was kind of, for me during the interview, is the fact that when he started studying evolution and in the Lenskis lab and using microorganisms to study evolution because of the first generation times, mm -hmm. really the study of evolution was limited to phenotypes. Just how does bacteria behave in front yeah. of other bacteria and these competitions? And the big genomic era hadn't even started. And I cannot even imagine what was the thought process of people when genomics started to be a possibility and actually understanding the changes at, at the DNA level what big world that opened because I just give it for granted you know as I said we just yeah. based our experiments knowing we are going to be able to look at the genome level and before that wasn't even a thing. No and it's really I mean we both call ourselves microbiologists but the work we do especially when you're working with evolution and microbiology you're basically a bacterial geneticist now because so much of the work is based on sequencing or I mean there's so much work that ends up being like at a genetic level mm -hmm. that it's hard to imagine not having that I cannot imagine working with something and feeling that kind of unknown because <laughs> I hate having that unknown and I mean a lot of times you don't see a difference between this mutant and the parental mm -hmm. on phenotype that easily But then it begs the question, if you cannot find a phenotype change, does it actually matter that there was a change? Well, you I know? mean, more like, like we get a, here, you can maybe like... see, say that, I mean, in my work, it's always an increase in resistance level, basically. Yeah. But there's so many reasons why that could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be because of a change in the structure. It could be because of a change in the target. Mm -hmm. It could be that the antibiotic's not coming in. It's, you have no idea why. Mm -hmm. And that would be so frustrating to me. <laughs> I hate not knowing why. Even if I can't understand why that change gives that effect, I at least know what the change was. Yeah, you know, right? like <laughs> I understand what mm -hmm. you mean. Yeah. On the interview, I also reflected on something that I don't think I stopped to think so much, and is the fact that most likely biofilms, you know, these aggregates of bacteria, very cozy up together, sort of thing. That's how I imagine them that this might actually be the normal and the natural way of bacteria to live. Yeah. You know, because my relationship with bacteria really are actually, it was when I was working in the lab. And the majority of people, unless you are actually working on biofilms and mm -hmm. understanding biofilms, you don't encounter so much the biofilm mode of living of the bacteria. So for me, it was like tubes with liquid and bacteria in it and this flask with culture and bacteria. Yeah. So this planktonic that he was mentioning But when you think about how do bacteria live out there, you know, in the streams, in the water, or even in our bodies, you know, in our guts, they have to be on a surface or in our teeth or whatever, you know, maybe this biofilm way of living is actually the way of living for bacteria. And I think understanding how biofilms are formed, how biofilms evolve, how does it change from being non-biofilm to a biofilm, it doesn't only give us clues into the pathogenicity or maybe for clinical aspects, but also just the basic understanding of how bacteria 
work and live, right? Yeah. Which is really cool. And especially this kind of thing of when you come into the evolution and the bacterial genetic side of it, the horizontal transfer of DNA, for example. So a way that bacteria can pick up genes from other bacteria in their close proximity. I mean, all of this is a little bit different in biofilms. We don't know exactly all the time how different or how it would work naturally in a more, we say natural setting, but that of course is context dependent. But we know it's different. Mm -hmm. We know what we study in the lab probably isn't what we're actually seeing in the natural setting that they originally came from. Mm -hmm. And that habitat or setting changes. These bacteria are often transferred in different environments and stuff like that. So it kind of brings in this added complexity of it. But like you said, you have to start somewhere. But I do love that they're moving more into biofilms and that kind of work that maybe are more relevant and seeing that it's not as simple as when we do planktonic growth in the lab. I just have one last note. I really love that Vaughn was so excited about this evolving STEM project that he's mm -hmm. worked on. It's really nice to see somebody that's more kind of advanced in their career, you'd say, really come back and, I mean, you could kind of hear that he really enjoyed it and that he was excited about it. And I think that is a great trait in a researcher and a professor, especially, to come back and feel that kind of excitement in teaching the basic concepts again. And I thought that was really nice to hear more about. I mean, it's really cool. We always also struggle with this when we do our outreach activities. How do we actually show kids or younger generation evolution in action? Because evolution yeah. is such a hard concept to really understand when you don't see it in front of you. Mm -hmm. And it's about concepts that you have to put together and you don't have something in front of you to relate to. Yeah. So for them using this, they can see change in action. It's so cool and definitely people should go check out the website and maybe use some of the resources if they can. And I'm sure we are going to also see if we can maybe apply some of it for yeah, our absolutely. next uh, adventures with the school kids. Yes, yeah. for sure. All right. I think with this, we can move on to the new section, which comes in a little bit uh, busy and fill up with yep. stuff this month, right? <laughs> a lot happened. <laughs> yes. All right. See you there. Welcome to the new section for this uh, month of November. Jenny, I have you here in front of me and I feel like <laughs> I want to talk a lot with you. Like now it's a nice setup. But something very important happened between the last episode and this episode and is that you defended your PhD. So now I yeah. can actually call you Dr. Jenny Jackman. Congratulations. Yes. It still and, sounds really weird to me, but yeah. And right before your defense, you also got your paper published. Yes. Very frustratingly, the same day, but later in the day, after my final deadline to publish my thesis, mm -hmm. we found out that our paper was accepted. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't include it as accepted in my thesis, but the important thing is that it's published. Yeah. So our paper titled, Low Levels of Tetracyclines Select for a Mutation that Prevents the Evolution of High-Level Resistance to Tigacycline, published in Plus Biology in late September. This was actually a side project of mine. It was a spinoff from the larger project in my thesis that ended up becoming literally the thing I did for about four years and most of the work I've done in my thesis, which is apparently entirely common. I can happens. relate. That happened exactly to me as well. Yeah. What we basically found is that this tetracycline efflux pump that pumps out tetracycline antibiotics, including a last-line antibiotic called tigacycline, but to a really low degree, so it's not really at all clinically relevant, can be amplified and allow for clinically relevant pumping out of tigacycline from the cell. However, we also found a mutated version of the repressor protein that regulates this pump that prevents this kind of resistance development. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting thing was, because this mutation basically decreases the expression of the pump, since the antibiotic itself actually induces the pump, mm -hmm. we found that low levels of the tetracycline antibiotics, while the pump is still induced, it's actually giving a fitness advantage 
for the cells that are carrying this mutated version of the efflux pump, mm-hmm. which is really counterintuitive. The kind of work we do in our lab, we often see that you know low levels of antibiotics select for high level resistance mutations. But this was a weird case, or it's not actually that weird, but low levels of antibiotics are actually selecting for something that prevents high level resistance. Which is good. Which is good. I mean, we'd prefer the antibiotics not to be there at all. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's interesting that it works in that way. Mm-hmm. And we also looked a bit into how this mutation has spread and disseminated in the population and why it might exist. Is it just the cost? Is it also connected Mm -hmm. to other things? But yeah, it's a really interesting story. I really have a love-hate relationship with this paper right now, (laughs) as I think most people at this point in their careers do with their work. But I'm so happy it's finally published. Great. Uh, Very happy for you. It was a great uh, day. Your defense and your party and everything. Yeah. Slightly more energy now, which is great. I don't sound like it because I got sick after the defense like everybody does. (laughs) But it's great to have you back. Real real life here. Yes. All right. So now we are going to move on to one recent public article from Mm -hmm. actually our own center, from the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. So this paper was published by our former PhD student, Katrin Barkte, at the lab of Darmet Hughes, and has for a title, Evolution of Bacterial Interspecies Hybrids with Enlarged Chromosome. And it was published in the journal Genome Biology and Evolution on this past 8th of September. We are a little bit later on covering it because they were also publishing a highlight point on it at the journal, which is very nice. So now I can fully talk about it. I have a little bit of a close relationship with this work as well because it's from the lab of my PhD supervisor and I did work with not enlarged chromosomes but chromosomes that are somehow change either in the order of the genes or where the origin is versus the terminus of the chromosome. So it's kind of like the underlying way of looking at how bacteria evolve and it's really, really cool work. So I am not going to go into a lot of details of it. This is available if you want to know more about like the minutia of how this happened. You can go and read the article. But the main question of this work is... What happens if when we make a hybrid between two different bacteria genetically, like the genomes kind of fuse somehow, what happens if this event changes the size of the chromosome? So they have this underlying question and then they try to see with this work, how would these chromosomal hybrids form? What are the mechanisms for this to actually happen? Mm-hmm. And what would their evolutionary trajectories be after these enlarged chromosomes are created? And what will happen with these enlarged chromosomes? So as I said, it fits really well with the interview we just had, because it's also about these basic evolutionary questions of yeah. like, does this happen? Is this related to what might happen in nature? And then if it does happen, How does it evolve? What is the evolutionary trajectories of Mm. this? So what they did was to put E. coli and salmonella together. And by the magic of genetic engineering, which I love, like you just basically make the experiments in a way that if a hybrid can happen between these two E. coli and salmonella bacteria, which might share DNA by a conjugative plasmid, which is a plasmid that can transfer between bacteria, So if you can actually make these hybrids, you can select for them. You can kind of fish them out, which is cool. Mm -hmm. And then you can study them. Okay, how did they happen? How do they look? And then you can 
of course, after due evolution with them. So they selected 11 interspecies hybrids with this interchange of genomic happen. And they found that some of them, they just created an extra plasmid with the DNA from both. Mm-hmm. So they will have a chromosome that is from the recipient, which is salmonella. And then they will have an F plasmid that will have DNA from the donor that is the E. coli. But then they also found some instances where there was recombination of the donor DNA into the chromosome of that recipient bacteria. In this case, the salmonella is the recipient, E. coli is the donor. So they found that, yeah, this actually can happen. We can get DNA of a donor bacteria throughout a conjugative plasmid into a recipient bacteria. Mm -hmm. In some cases, that DNA that got recombined into the chromosome substitute some part of the recipient DNA. So it kind of like a little bit of a change. We take a bit of the salmonella recipient one and then we put in the chromosome. So it doesn't actually grow. It doesn't actually grow or it can grow, but also including a bit of a replacement. But some of the ones that they were able to find, they did have an integration into the chromosome of the donor DNA without replacing the recipient DNA. And those obviously resulted in enlarged chromosomes. Yeah. That have both the DNAs from both the donor and the recipient. I know this is a little bit like a tongue twister of donor recipient (laughs) and DNA recombination. But the cool thing is that if that can actually happen, which is because there are a little bit of similarity, it doesn't have to be a lot of similarity between the DNAs or the chromosomes. And if you can do it in a way that you don't substitute something from the recipient, this can actually be a way that this happens in the nature because you don't really need to have a lot of similarity through very long stretches mm-hmm. of the DNA. You just need some little part where this can recombine and happen, and then you will end up with these enlarged chromosomes. So then the idea now is like, okay, what happens when these enlarged chromosomes are there. Are they happy? And what they mm-hmm. saw is that they are not happy. They're actually growing slower because, you know, the cell is not really ready to have these very no. large chromosomes. And then when they took these ones and they evolved them in the lab, very quickly what they were able to see is that they could restore the growth. So they became almost as good as the original before any enlargement happened of the chromosome. And then the cool thing about this is that they wanted to see, okay, so how did the bacteria solve the problem that they originally have with this enlarged chromosome, which is what Darmet's lab does all the time, trying to see what is the underlying problem, right? Mm -hmm. And how can they solve it? So one very easy way that you would think it happens is that all the DNA that was transferred and it was recombined and the part that basically is extra in this recipient Mm -hmm. chromosome that you would just delete it and take it away. And then basically it's like the step that happens, you reverse it exactly and that's it. But the cool thing is that in none of the evolved strains that they did, that was actually the solution. Okay. So what happens is that the smaller regions, including DNA from both the donor and the recipient, were randomly deleted. And those deletions brought back the fitness to a level. But none of them just took the, what we would think, easy route. That is, just take away all just the like DNA. control Z, yeah. undo. <laughs> and that what is cool is that when that happens, you basically are fixing this new architecture on the chromosome because once you start deleting these parts, you create a new configuration of the chromosome that is irreversible because there is no really way to go back to the way that it was before this recombination and enlargement happened. So maybe this is a way where bacteria are actually evolving out in the nature if they can transfer DNA among themselves you know that Mm -hmm. this is actually a way that evolution happens and I think it's really cool and to kind of 
put it all into context of why this project is also part of UHC, we're talking about natural processes. But we do know that in the clinics, a lot of the very relevant clinical strains that are pathogens are formed by hybridization of different species with each other. Oh, I didn't know So that. we do need to kind of know how does this process work? Can we actually find a way where we can prevent from these hybridizations between clinical relevant species to form? Because I think there was some very important salmonella strain and also pseudomonas strain mm-hmm. that is causing a lot of problems in the hospitals. They actually find that up to 20, 30% of the chromosome is coming from another species. Wow. So... That's how we can go back and relate this to what is actually happening out there and why this is a part of the Uppsala Antibiotic Center project lineup, so to speak. So I really enjoyed looking at this paper. There is a highlight out there. We're going to leave the links to both of them. So if you are interested in learning a little bit more, just check the show notes. Yeah. But since we have a lot to do, I'm going to move straight on to another article published in Lancet Microbe in the October issue titled Effect of Pneumococcal Conjugate Vaccines and SARS-CoV-2 on Antimicrobial Resistance and the Emergence of Streptococcus Pneumonia Serotypes with Reduced Susceptibility in Spain, 2004 to 2020, a national surveillance study. That is a long title. It's a really long title. (laughs) But the underlying thing that this study is looking at is one of the things that we talk about when we talk about vaccinations as an effort against bacterial strains. And one of the concerns there is replacement of other serotypes. So a vaccine will usually cover a few specific types or serotypes, in this case, of a bacterial species. The ones that are of most concern clinically, probably, or can cause severe disease, or in this case, they're also looking at ones that have high resistance issues and whatnot. And for this, the streptococcus pneumonia, pneumococcal vaccines, they've carried seven, 13, you know, they're continuously adding new serotypes to these vaccines. Because part of the concern is when we give a sort of immunity towards some serotypes, other ones will come in and be of a concern. So what they looked at was basically, are we seeing replacement of new serotypes that become concerning? Are we seeing an increase in resistance? Or are we is the vaccine helping with resistance? And then, if I understand right, this kind of happened to also coincide with the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. So they also actually looked at the effect of early SARS-CoV-2 pandemic on the sorts of resistance that was seen in this species. Mm-hmm. And streptococcus pneumonia is a very clinically relevant species. It's a leading cause of infection and disease and death because it causes pneumonia. It can also cause meningitis and bacteremia and whatnot. It's a very serious issue. And in this study, they're looking specifically at Spain, Mm -hmm. and they look at a few time points, specific years that correspond to, what to say, early for a vaccine or late in that vaccine's introduction. Mm -hmm. They look at a couple different ones, what they call PCV7 and PCV13. And then they also talk about a new one that's being introduced now called PCV20. Mm-hmm. So they carry 7, 13 versus 20 serotypes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And what they see in general is that, yes, when the vaccine is introduced, these serotypes of concern go down. Mm-hmm. The prevalence goes down. Yeah. Other serotypes might kind of Take increase over. in prevalence. Mm-hmm. But overall, they're seeing a benefit of this vaccine. Mm-hmm. And when the new vaccines, including more serotypes, are added, then they see the same thing. You know, those serotypes go down. Same thing with the new PCV20. And in this study, they looked at isolates that had reduced susceptibility. Mm-hmm. So already ones that were basically maybe not resistant, what we'd say a clinical resistance level, but have increased resistance compared to the base level, mm-hmm. basically. And they also saw that, yes, that the vaccine helps reduce resistance levels, basically. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a decrease in isolates with reduced susceptibility in general. 
this is a continuous thing that they need to keep an eye on. You know, you might need to update the vaccine regularly, keep an eye on resistance levels. But there does appear to be an advantage of using Mm -hmm. these vaccines, which is just a great evidence that the concept works. Yeah, that's good. Interestingly, they did also see an increase in resistance levels from the brief time period between 2019 and 2020, where they're seeing the SARS-CoV-2 effect. The idea being that there were a lot of antibiotics prescribed early on to try to prevent Mm co-infection with um, surgical pneumonia because that was a concern. Mm -hmm. There is some evidence that it is a problem, both that it is an advantage to be vaccinated against this, but also that's a disadvantage to be co-infected. Yeah. So they did see an effect on slightly increased resistance levels. Because of the amount of antibiotics used. Yeah, they're assuming it's because of the amount of antibiotics used. But they saw either way in the pandemic, there was an increase Mm -hmm. in resistance levels. So this is also something to keep in mind. Of course, in that situation, doctors did what they could do. Mm -hmm. But it is something that you need to keep in mind that we might be causing future problems Mm -hmm. if we don't reduce it as much as we can. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very interesting study. It's open access, so you can see all the information yourself. But it's just nice to kind of have this evidence that the vaccinations can help. Yeah, that's why I thought it was a really nice paper to cover because we talk a lot about how can we prevent AMR. Mm -hmm. And I think vaccinations to prevent infections, it's really a way forward. And just as proof that it's not just preventing infections, but it's also reducing the burden of AMR within the the, infections, basically. The infections, yeah, that's even more targeted. So maybe that's a way to go forward because seeing how difficult it is to bring new antibiotics into the market that are formulated only for resistant organisms, maybe the vaccines yeah. only for resistant strains mm. might be an easier way forward. But right? it's similar to antimicrobials in that you kind of need to keep updating. It's, yeah, it's a course. constant it's effort, mm-hmm. but it's still valuable. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Great. We, of course, leave the links in the show notes. We kind of have to pull through the things that we want to bring to you today. Some months there is not so much happening. Other months there's a lot of things going on. Just recently, we got to know that there is follow-up work published to the very important already seminal paper on the burden of bacterial antimicrobial resistance globally in 2019, which is a paper published in The Lancet that we already covered, maybe it was half a year ago or something like that. Now there is a paper published also in The Lancet titled The Burden of Bacterial Antimicrobial Resistance in the WHO European Region in 2019 Across Country Systematic Analysis. And this is a very similar way done as the other papers, so we're not going to go in a lot of uh, details. They also put it into context of how many deaths are associated with bacterial AMR versus how many deaths are directly attributable to bacterial AMR. And they also do a very nice division into different infection syndromes and which ones kill more people every mm-hmm. year in the European region. Just to say the European region in this paper, it's a lot more than the European Union. So I don't mm-hmm. want anybody out there to think that these results mean just the European Union. A couple of years ago, there was a paper published by Cassini and colleagues where they look also at the burden of AMR in Europe and the countries that they use and the pathogens that they're looking into are a bit different. So please do not compare these yeah. directly one with the other. If you read the paper, they talk at length about how the, those two mm-hmm. things compare. But Overall, the result is that they estimate 541,000 deaths associated with bacterial AMR and 133,000 deaths attributable to bacterial AMR in the WHO European region, which also includes 
Russia, which is the biggest country now in this cohort, mm -hmm. and Uzbekistan and all the Eastern European, almost two Middle uh, Middle East. Eur Eurasian. Uh, yeah, Eurasian yeah. Uh, countries as well. So it's a big cohort of countries. And uh, I mean, the numbers kind of say it all. If you compare this with the previous paper, that means mm -hmm. that 10% of all the both attributable deaths and associated deaths in around the world happen in the European region. Mm. Uh, one thing that I think it's bears to mention in this very brief overview is that this analysis includes all empirical data. So the previous article about the global burden, there was a lot of data for countries that had to be estimated because mm -hmm. they didn't really have the data for it. Here is all empirical data, which means, you know, there's more surveillance, there is more data available for this area. But it just tells us what we already knew. AMR, it's not a silent pandemic that it's not present, that is going to have a lot of effect in the future. It is here. Yeah. A lot of people are dying now of resistance infections. Mm -hmm. And we have to do something about it. So this is a very good paper for anybody out there that needs to put uh, the problem into context. This yeah. is the reference that you want to give for the European region, basically. And this might sound very cynical, but... It's not a problem that exists somewhere else either. I think especially here in Sweden, a lot of people are just like, oh, I mean, that's a problem in other countries that maybe are less developed. It's it's a problem everywhere. And even if it is a problem somewhere else, you should still care. But, <laughs> yes, but. that's that's my opinion. <laughs> but it's not even just a problem somewhere else. It's a problem much closer than people think. Mm -hmm. But with that, we have one last thing we want to bring up. So the WHO released a fungal priority pathogen list. We've had a bacterial priority pathogen lists for a while. The CDC had a fungal priority pathogen list, but this is the first global list. It includes three different groupings with critical high and medium priority pathogens. And it's based on both disease burden, deaths, and resistance issues, and many other factors. So it's very nice to see this kind of work being done in fungal pathogens as well. Mm -hmm. It's often a bit neglected. Yeah, we should look for more fungal papers. We have yeah. talked about candida. We're, we're, we're also is... guilty of this, of yeah. kind of focusing more on bacterial. We don't focus as much on viral and yeah. uh, fungal pathogens. But I think it's really great that they've shown that this is a global priority. Mm -hmm. And it's important that this yeah. kind of list exists. We will also leave the link to the report, which is quite extensive. And if you want to learn a little bit more about fungi and important fungi, this is actually a very nice resource to go to as well. Yeah. With this, we are covered for the news, but yeah. uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of things more before we sign off for this uh, very probably long episode. I don't know how long it's going to be yet, uh. but now we're preparing for the, the most important week of the year for us, <laughs> which is the World Antimicrobial Awareness Week coming up now on 18th to 24th of November. We are working really hard for two specific things that are going to mm -hmm. happen that week. One is that we're going to publish a special episode on a really cool topic that I'm not going to give out just yet. So just uh, keep an eye for the updated on the podcast yeah. and the social media as well. So you get an extra episode this month. Exactly, an extra episode. And then I'm also working very hard because we're going to have our first kind of bigger conference here in Uppsala 
the Uppsala Antibiotic Days uh, that we are organizing together with the Platinea Project and the Enable 2 Project. And I want to everybody listening out there in uh, different places around the world, and even though this is a local conference happening here in Uppsala, there's going to be a lot of things about it in social media, in our uh, Twitter account most probably. Mm -hmm. So just keep an eye out there for the 24th and 25th of November when this conference is going to be taking place here in Uppsala. Yeah, and there'll be lots of other events that week in general. Yeah. So if you're interested in this topic, this is the week to keep an eye out. Uh, just Google World Antibiotic Awareness Week at 2022 and you'll probably find lots of information. And yeah, Definitely. I'm really excited for this. Great. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited for it to be done. <laughs> so <laughs> so much you must to be very do. tired. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that week as well. Mm -hmm. So thank you, everybody, for being with us one more month. And I hope to see you on this special episode coming up and then on the next regular episode. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.